You know that Jesus cares more about relationship than about rules. You know, the Old Testament is, uh, I can't remember the number off the top of my head because numbers just go right out, but there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules in the Old Testament. So much so that it's uh, the, a large section of it's called the law. And yet there's all those rules that God gave us. And Jesus cares more about relationship than about rules. One, uh, one of my daughters, and I won't say which one, she, uh, she uh, I think this was in the fall. It might have been a little earlier than that. But she, uh, I came in the kitchen one time. And just to back it up a sec, to give you context, we had this one cupboard that this wasn't very wise, but it was on the, the, the lower level that had youth snacks in it. We'd have snacks for the, when the youth would come over to our house, and uh, there happened to be some leftovers from s'mores, just to set that up right there. One time, I come in the kitchen, and I hear this cupboard door slam really fast, and I look over with this, my one daughter with a very guilty look on her face, with a little bit of brown around her face, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And so I ask her, daughter, what happened? What, what, why do you look so guilty? And she, she hung her head in shame. She opened the cupboard door. And I said, what were you eating? And she points at it. And there's this chocolate bar with the foil uh, ripped back with little nibbles all around the outside. And you could tell that some of them were much older than others. I hadn't been in the cupboard for a little while. And she, she was very sad. And I, and I talked to her. And she knew that we had a rule that she's not allowed to just take food out of the cupboards because otherwise she would just scavenge and eat whatever she wanted all the time and not eat the good food we had for her. So we had this rule. And, uh, but I care more about my relationship with her than just about the rule. So I talked with her. And I told her, I know, you know I have to discipline you, right? And she, she nodded. She understood that I had to discipline her because she broke the rule. But any time that we discipline, we make sure to talk to her and to tell her why we have the rules, and that it comes from God, that we, we have to follow what God has, and that we're trying to shape her heart. And any time that we discipline her, we spend the next time after cuddling, uh, cuddling them and telling them uh, that we love them and affirming them. Because what I care more isn't just having a daughter who's obedient and follows all the rules. I care more about having a daughter that knows and loves Jesus. That's what I care most about. And there's rules that have to be followed. Obedience is an important part of being a follower of Jesus, but it's not the only part. And so as we continue this series on the life of Jesus, we've so far seen that Jesus uh, is a leader. He calls people to follow after him. He raised up followers that he called disciples. And we also see that Jesus is a healer. Jesus has done some amazing healing miracles in his time. And he has the authority and the power of God And last week, we saw how Jesus calls us to have faith. And it's not a passive faith. It's an active faith. And that's faith that drives us to relationship in Jesus. And today, we're seeing that Jesus, as a teacher, he tells people that he cares more about relationship than about rules. So if you follow along with me, we'll be reading uh, out of a passage from Mark. Two, uh, all the way up to three, uh, one to six, but we'll be starting in two, 18 to 22, and I'll be reading out of the NIV. It should be on the screen behind me here, and it says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, 
How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom feast or fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. On that day, they will fast. And then he goes on to give an illustration. He says, no one, patches, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And then he goes on another illustration. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Have you ever in your, in your time on this earth have somebody that you've been in relationship with or have at least have been an acquaintance with that seems to just have it out for you? That no matter what you do, they'll find something wrong with you. Well, Jesus experienced this when he was on the earth. And there's this nice little phrase that I like. It says, an ill will always suspects the worst. An ill will always suspects the worst. If someone wants to find something wrong with you, no offense, but they won't have to look very long. If somebody wants to have it out for you, if they want to criticize you, they're going to find something. There's this pastor that I've heard of that uh, he has a new way. He's confident enough in himself. If someone comes to him and criticizes him for something, he'll listen to them politely, let them go on about what he's done terribly wrong, and then he says, well, you only know the half of it. If somebody wants to find something wrong with you, they will. And Jesus, Jesus encountered this. This group that he had the, the biggest trouble with throughout his uh, ministry was uh, often called, the, uh, the biggest one probably was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they liked to practice this thing that was practiced by all the Jews, which was fasting. And fasting was a, a, an intentional period of not eating, often not drinking, uh, at least at certain periods. And they would do it to remember times when great disasters had happened on their people. For example, one of the things that they were fasting, and likely what they were fasting about at this time, was a disaster that had happened. The temple was destroyed in 587 BC. The place that, uh, that David's son Solomon had built to the exact specifications he was told to was destroyed by Babylon because of Israel's disobedience. And so in order to remember this travesty, they would fast. But Jesus shows for these people not to focus on the past, but to live in the present and to look to the future. So Jesus is saying, why would, why would my disciples fast right now? Bridegroom is with them. We're in the middle of a party. It's party season. Why would they fast? So he's pointing to the past and say, that's fine. You can look at the past. But then he points out the future. There will be a time when they will fast, when I'll be taken away. But for now, he says to live in the present. So he emphasizes the present joy that his disciples have. They're living life with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're living with Jesus. And so he has this, uh, this idea that you need to live in the present. You remember the past, but you, look to the, you live in the present and you look to the future. There's an illustration that I love that works for anyone who's either uh, learning to drive or has driven for many years. It's always good to have a reminder. 
But we have this thing called a rear view mirror. I hope some of you have seen it before. <laughs> and the way it works is that when you're, when you're driving, you have this giant window screen that you're looking through. Sometimes you're supposed to do mirror checking. But when I did my driver's training, the, uh, the driving instructor told me that you're supposed to bounce your eyes on the mirrors. So you never stare in a rear view mirror because you're going forward. And you're driving forward, you're moving forward, so you, you look, you glance in the mirrors every once in a while just to see. If you're in rush hour traffic and you're staring in your rear view mirror, you won't be driving forward very much longer. I'm going to tell you that. I've had that when I've been on in Edmonton. There was a highway that wasn't very well uh, built yet because there was stoplights on a highway. And I stopped suddenly once because I had been not paying as much attention. I stopped, and then I heard the worst sound you're going to hear when you stop suddenly. Didn't quite sound like that, but that's my best I can do. But that person wasn't paying attention. They were looking back. They were looking sideways. We need to look forward. We live in the present, but not... Uh, and you can glance at the past to learn, to figure out what's going on, but you need to look for the future. Now, these Pharisees uh, that, uh, that Jesus is having problems with now... Uh, often Christians like to beat up on them. There's even little camp songs. I don't want to be a Pharisee. No. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Because they're not fair, you see. They're not very fair. It's true. It's almost biblical there. But we like to, we like to jump on these Pharisees. But we, we can't dismiss them as a bunch of hypocrites. We can't dismiss them as they're the worst possible people. What they're guilty of actually is being hypercritical. They were very critical of people. But the term Pharisees actually means separated one. The Pharisees uh, were people that were very considered with following the law. And as I said, there were hundreds and hundreds of laws, and they thought they were all equally important. So they did their best to follow every single law. And they tried to make sure that this emphasis on the law would be spread to every other Jew that there was. They were, uh, they were often not priests. They were even lay people that had other day jobs and they spent the rest of their time working to try and make sure they followed the law and they tried to make sure everyone else followed the law. And so they followed laws including ritual purity that usually only meant for, was only meant for priests. And so they took the nitty gritty, the smallest little details that were only meant for priests in certain situations and they thought they should apply to everyone. So they took the law and then took it further than it meant to be. And before we judge them too hard, they were doing their best to follow Leviticus 19.2, which says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Saying, be holy like God is holy. And this this is a good pursuit. In, uh, to go back church history a little bit, in the 1900s, in North America, there was a revival. It was called the Holiness Movement. And it was a revival to go back to holiness. People had felt like they had lost their way. The church had lost their way. They were starting to get into things that, uh, that they shouldn't. And so there were churches that were birthed out of this movement. There was revival. There was people that were coming to faith in Jesus radically. The Holy Spirit was moving powerfully. Tons of people were coming to faith in Jesus. And it was out of this idea that to be holy as I am holy is what God is calling us to do. And the Church of the Nazarene is one of those movements that began out of that time. This, this call to be holy. The issue is that sometimes 
we take what has happened and experience that we have had with God and our personal rules that we can set up because of the experience we've had and we turn it into a harsh structure. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to legislate morality. And so they were doing what uh, today is called legalism. They were trying to, to make it so that people followed rules for the rules' sake without them having the experience and the relationship with God first of all. And so rather than them following God in a personal, self-sacrificing way, they were trying to make other people follow God without the same depth of relationship. So rather than being personally holy and then being merciful and treating other people with kindness and love, they were treating other people with anger and with uh, devout scorn or disdain. And so they were thinking that they were better than other people. They were becoming full of pride. And so the Pharisees were these self-appointed guardians of public morality. They alienated themselves from others because they thought they were better than other people. And they caused nothing but strife in the relationships between themselves and other people and pride in themselves because they made their own rules and they followed them better than anyone else followed them. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I think sometimes that applies to people these days too. Sometimes people that do their best to follow certain rules that they themselves have, judge other people that they don't go by their standards. But this actually goes both ways because uh, I've had a conversation with someone who's not a Christian and I tried to ask them how morality works. If you don't have a set of, uh, if you don't have a standard, how does morality work? Because no matter who you are, if you make a set of rules, you're not going to break your own set of rules usually. And so it depends if you, what you're using to judge yourself or the world against. It needs to be a standard outside of yourselves. For the, the Pharisees, they took God's word, which is a great starting place, but then they took it too far. They actually went past God's word. But often people go the other way. They take God's word or they ignore God's word and they just make their own thing. Well, I'm better than Hitler, so I'm pretty good. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not Hitler. I'm in the middle. I'm good. I'm somewhere in between there. But the thing is that rather than doing all this crazy amount of work to follow these rules like the Pharisees do, Jesus cares so much more about relationship than he cares about rules. Now, I'm not standing up here saying don't follow any rules because clearly the Bible has lots of rules and has obedience. But Jesus cares more about relationship than rules because there are people like the Pharisees that follow rules, but they don't have a relationship. And that's never what Jesus wants. So there's people that can do all sorts of crazy work. And they, what the Pharisees would say is essentially, if you do all of these rules, these hundreds and hundreds of rules, we'll give you a list we haven't written out. Make sure you follow all these rules. You do all of them, okay, now you can be in our community. Now you can be a Pharisee. But Jesus actually does the opposite. He actually says he invites everyone to come and follow him. And then as they get a relationship with him, as it gets deeper and deeper, he expects greater and greater uh, obedience. So it starts really easy and gradually gets more difficult. Whereas the Pharisees say, you have to do everything or you're not in. And so what Jesus is saying is, follow after me. And notice in this, in this uh, little discourse that Jesus has with the Pharisees, he never dismiss, dismisses fasting as a bad thing. 
He never says, well, you don't need to fast anymore. He says, no, they will fast in the future. And he gives two different reasons for them not fasting. The first is they're celebrating his presence with them. He calls himself a bridegroom. Often in the, uh, the New Testament, the church is called the, the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom, or as we've shortened it these days, the groom. He's the one that's, that's waiting for this joyous relationship with him. Now, if you're at a wedding, it would be a little inappropriate to fast at that moment. One of the best things about weddings, besides the ceremony and everything, I'm a little lenient towards those because I like doing those, but is the feast. You get this celebration, you get this great food, and then, uh, depending on your set of rules, dancing after. And so there's this great celebration together. And uh, Karison and I, when we were on our honeymoon, it was this joyous time of getting to know each other and enjoying our relationship. Now, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been uh, a good discipline to do, but we didn't really feel compelled to fast during our honeymoon. Instead, we actually feasted on our honeymoon. We went to Luau, we went to these great restaurants, we had fish that I can't even pronounce, and it was a wonderful time. But that wasn't the season for fasting. There's a time and a place for fasting, and what Jesus said, it would be after he came back. And the second that reason that Jesus gives is these are early days. Jesus is just building his relationship with his disciples. He's just starting their walk with him and learning about what it means to follow after Jesus. And so he didn't expect them to be mature yet. He expected them to be immature. They're just learning what it means to follow after Jesus. And this, this same principle is that if somebody is just trying to figure out faith, if they're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, and we impose a whole list of do's and do's not right away, rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to convict somebody of their sin or not sin, then it, it, it feels like, I don't want to follow those rules. I don't know if anyone else has that same kind of rebellious spirit that I do, but if I'm forced to do something, I don't want to do it. But if I come to it of my own, of my own volition, of my own decision, then I'm happy to do it. Uh, I have permission to share this, but Karison, when she was a kid, her, her mom forced her to eat beets, forced her to eat borscht, and she hated it, and she still won't eat borscht this day. I'm not saying that borscht isn't good, but she hated it because she was forced to. Now, she, I've, I've opened her up to beets a little bit again, but when she was compelled to, when she was forced to, she didn't want to, so she didn't enjoy it, but maybe if she, if she was allowed to try beets and then to go to it later and maybe start to like it or not. It was the, uh, the better way is when I was a kid, I hated tomatoes. And it's, you always get them on hamburgers. I would always pick them off. I'd always hate them. But my mom allowed me to try them. And to, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't let me not try them at all. But she'd say, try a little bit if you don't like it. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if there was like a tomato liking switch in my brain. But all of a sudden, when I was an adult, I like tomatoes now. And I'll even eat them just raw. It's weird. But... When we're forced to do something, when we force immature people that are just trying to figure out faith or that they aren't even Christian yet, and we say, you have to act this way, you have to talk this way, you have to do this, it's the wrong setting for that. And so the principle Jesus is saying is it's more caring about relationship with a person first, and then the obedience to rules will come in time. And so fasting, fasting is an interesting thing because the Pharisees... Uh, we're doing something that's great. 
And Jesus often actually pointed to the rules that they would follow. They would tithe not only their money, not only their income, but actually their spices. He said they would tithe their dill and their cumin. And he never makes fun of them for it. He actually says, that's great. But he said, but the most important thing is that you have a heart that follows and loves me. So he says, do all these things. Do all these rules. Those are great things. They're great things to follow. But the most important thing is that you have a heart of love for me and others, first of all. And the Pharisees were missing that. And so Jesus said that he came to do something new. He gives us these two examples. If you try and force something old to work with something new, it's not going to work. It's actually going to cause more damage. And it's interesting, this part where he talks about uh, the unshrunk cloth being on a patch on a garment. I'm not very good at sewing. My grandma and grandpa tried to teach me knitting once, and I've totally forgotten. But sewing, I'm not at all useful. But just this idea, I can picture this in my head of having a patch on a garment, and you wash it, and all of a sudden it's this worse hole. As Jesus is saying, if you try and force these old methods on this new work that I am doing, it's not going to work. It's actually going to cause more harm and more damage. Now, Jesus, uh, Jesus never went so far as to say he abolished the law. There actually, uh, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. And so the law itself, the Old Testament, everything that came before was a good thing. And it had its purpose and it's had its time. But Jesus said he came to fulfill it. He came to create a better and a new covenant that was done in his blood. And so Jesus is saying the old methods had their time and had their purpose. But he came to do something new. And so the idea that the, the main idea that he was trying to distinguish is that the, the Old Testament Jews, that they were actually meant to be separate from the world. A lot of the laws, a lot of the rules that they had to follow was to be separate and to be apart from the rest of the world. It was to be clean. They had a lot of rules about what made them clean and what made them unclean. And so they were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be a holy people unto the Lord. And actually the word holy does mean set apart. It means separate. It means holy other. And so they were called to be a nation that was holy and was this example for the rest of the world that was following after God with all these rules and all these laws. But they failed. They were never able to follow all of the rules. They were never able to follow all the laws. Their hearts wandered away from God. And so Jesus came to fulfill the requirement of the law. He was perfect. He fulfilled all the requirements, all of the righteousness that was needed that they could not possibly do. And Jesus, his new thing was, instead of being set apart from the world, instead of being distant, he came to live and to dwell and to be among the world. So where the Jews would say, yes, you can come and you can be a Jew if you follow all of these rules. If you do all of these things, you can come and be a Jew. But Jesus didn't wait for the people to come to him. He went to them. He went to his disciples and he said, you come and follow me. So Jesus was doing something that was completely radical. It was a completely new method. Rather than waiting for the world to come to him, he went to the world to save it. Jesus stepped down out of heaven to come to earth, to be and to live among us as a human being. He's the message that we can understand. He's the person that is God embodied in a, in a man. And so trying to do something new with old methods simply doesn't work. 
Jesus came to do something totally new. And the church is often guilty of this. Sometimes we try and say, well, we want to reach this next generation, but we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. But that doesn't work. Jesus shows us that he came to do something new. And so Jesus adapted the message to reach the culture that he was trying to reach. Okay, so fasting. Jesus says it's a fine thing, but he came to do something new. And there would be a time when they would fast again. In Mark 2, 23 to 28, it says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's a really easy to understand passage, right? We all know all the absolute history behind it, everything. Yeah? Everyone's good? Okay. Everyone's got their Bibles memorized? No? Okay, well, maybe I'll go into it a little bit. Okay, so there's some history going on here. We're not Jews. We don't have the Old Testament memorized like they did. But what happened was that David and his men, they were fleeing from Saul, the king that was trying to kill David. Even though he was anointed as king, he would become king, but he didn't force it in his own way. They were fleeing and they were hungry. And so they went into a holy place and ate bread that only priests were supposed to eat. And this was an unlawful thing. They could have been killed for this. God could have struck them dead if he wanted to because they weren't breaking the law. And Jesus, rather than condemning David and saying, well, this is something that he shouldn't have done, he actually uses this as an example of an exception to the rule. Because rules are actually more about the principle behind it. God gave Israel a whole bunch of rules so that they would live and walk in obedience and in love for him. But Jesus, when the Pharisees confront Jesus, he points them to their own history. He says, don't you know the Bible? The rhetorical questions, of course they did. They knew this rule. They knew what what David had done. But it's often easier uh, for... um, for them to ask Jesus and to confront Jesus rather than to work it out themselves. And this is an interesting thing uh, that one commentator pointed this out uh, that I just thought I'd say as an aside. Here the the Pharisees come to Jesus about what his disciples are doing. They don't confront his disciples because Jesus, it doesn't say, was doing it. His disciples were. And there are other parts uh, in the Gospels where uh, Jesus is doing something And the Pharisees go and ask his disciples, why is your teacher doing this? And the reason is it's often easier to go to talk to somebody else about what a person is doing rather than going directly to that person. So rather than going to the person that can actually deal with the issue, sometimes we go to somebody else and talk about the issue, hoping maybe that they'll go talk to them or however that works. But it's often easier to talk about a problem than to deal with a problem. And the, the issue with this is that it often causes division. Jesus could have easily went and went, well, what are those disciples doing? They're breaking the rules. Maybe that's what the Pharisees were hoping for. He would go and, and set them right. But instead, what Jesus does is what a good leader should do. He defends them. 
And he says, no, what they're doing is, is fine. And so Jesus' defense is actually twofold. First of all, he points to David and his men eating the showbread. He says, see, there's a history of it. There's a reason behind it. We're allowed to do things uh, for good reason. And the second is he argues that the Sabbath is made for man, not the man for the Sabbath or for the person, for the woman. And so the Sabbath is meant to be a gift and not a burden. Now for the Jews, uh, breaking the Sabbath was actually, uh, was actually enough to be killed. If you broke the rules of the Sabbath, what God had said, you could be taken out of town and stoned. Now, they didn't often do this, but it was permissible. And so being accused of breaking the Sabbath was a big deal in this day. And for Jesus, he was a leader, he was a teacher, it was, a, it was an even bigger deal. And so the Sabbath is something that is, Jesus points out, that is something that is made for us. It's meant to be a gift, not a burden. And the, the reason that he says this is because if the Sabbath is something that we have to do, it's something that is forced upon us, it can be very difficult for us to do. Now, Sabbath is something that, that our culture has completely lost. It used to be forced. It used to be the rules that shops were closed, no sports would play, and so basically, if you didn't go to church, you had a very boring day because you just stayed at home. If you mowed your lawn, your neighbor would glare at you. I wasn't alive back then, but, well, I might have been. I don't know the different times, but it used to be a very forced cultural thing that the Sabbath was followed. But that was the rule of the Sabbath. It just meant no work. It didn't mean that people were actually following the Sabbath because the point of the Sabbath is a time of rest and reflection and to praise God for what he has done. It's meant to be a time that we get to spend set apart for Jesus. Set apart to develop our relationship with Jesus. It's not something that's forced on us. And so the Sabbath can look all different ways for all different types of people. The, uh, the late Eugene Peterson who wrote the message, uh, the paraphrase of the, the Bible... He would, every Sabbath, every, uh, his Sabbath would be on Mondays because he was a pastor. He worked Monday, or he worked Sundays. Every Monday, him and his wife would, uh, would gather together in the morning, take their kids off to school, uh, come back home, make a quick lunch, uh, and then they would uh, drive somewhere to a hiking trail. His wife would read a psalm and then pray, lead them in prayer. He said that his, he would lead prayer on Sundays, she would lead prayer on Mondays. And then they would uh, spend the morning walking until the spot where they were going to have their lunch in total silence. They would, they would reflect and they would pray and they would notice nature. They would notice what the kingfisher did. They would notice what the different birds and the different animals did along the way. And then they would stop. They would uh, break the silence with lunch. They would pray together and then they would spend the rest of the day talking together, sharing what they had seen, sharing what God was speaking and doing, the reflections on the day before. And that was a beautiful thing of Sabbath, and that was a, the opportunity that they had to rest together and to be refreshed by God. Now, that's not something he had to do. There's no rule book that says pastors on Mondays have to do this and have to do this and have to do this. And it wasn't something that he did right away, but it was something that he got to do. So Sabbath is meant to give us rest. It's not just meant to be a day of nothing. It's meant to be a day full of reflection with God. To set ourselves aside for the day and to enjoy our relationship. A day of thanksgiving. 
a day of praise and rest from the worldly worries. And so the Sabbath, it, there's three different things that's amazing about it. it gets, we get to celebrate what a good master we serve. Jesus doesn't want to work us to death. He wants us to rest and to be refreshed in him. And this, the, so the Sabbath, secondly, is meant to refresh us. It's meant to fill us up. The word recreation should really be recreation. It's meant to recreate us. It's not just something that's meant to distract us. It's not just playing games and doing things. It's meant to fill our souls with rest. The other six days of the week, we work, we toil, we strive, we have worries. But on that day, we can be refreshed and filled by the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we must make sure it doesn't become this hollow religious form without the heart and life change that God calls us to. The Sabbath isn't something that we, are, we meant to do legalistically and with dour faces. It's something that we get to do. So Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He created it for us. It's a gift. God, when he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, the entire universe, he didn't need to spread it over six days. He could have done it in the snap of his fingers in one word. He could have created everything. But he created in this form that helps us to understand that we work for six days and we can rest for one. And this can look different for all kinds of people. Maybe your Sabbath is Sunday. Sunday is a great day for Sabbath. You can, you can pray in the morning. You can get up, do something that you enjoy. Come to church, praise God, and spend the rest of the day. However, if you're a nature person, go out for a walk, go for a drive, do whatever. Whatever day of the week, it doesn't matter. For Jews, it would be, uh, it would be from the sunset of the one day until, or yeah, sunset of the one day to sunset of the next. So for them, if it was uh, Friday evening, it would be until Saturday uh, dinner time, essentially. So that would be their 24 hours of rest. So however it looks like for you. But the point is that Jesus created this for us because he cares about relationship with us. He's not, he doesn't want us to follow a Sabbath because we have to. It's something that we get to do. It helps us to align our hearts with God on a weekly basis, to do a thorough check-in with him. Just as Eugene and his wife would, they would spend this time in silent prayer, talking with God, and allowing Jesus to speak to them. Our relationship with Jesus should take place every day of the week. It should be something that we, we spend each and every day with him. I have a, a guy that I've heard that when he would go on a drive, he would imagine Jesus clicking the seatbelt beside him in his passenger seat, and then it would just be him and Jesus. And he would talk and pray as he's driving. Whatever it looks like, Jesus should be part of our everyday lives. But there should be one day, one time that we set apart to truly be refreshed and to spend time with him. And reflecting on the Jewish custom of not working on the Sabbath, this one, uh, this one scholar, Philo, wrote, to give man relaxation from continuous and unending toil by re and by refreshing their bodies with a regularly calculated system of remissions to send them out renewed to their old activities. For a breathing spell enables not merely ordinary people, but athletes also to collect their strength with a stronger force behind them to undertake promptly and patiently each of the tasks set before them. It's this time to, to be strengthened. It's this time to take a deep breath. When, the, when he was talking about this athlete, I remember in junior high, I wasn't a prolific wrestler, but I, the one thing I remember from wrestling classes 
is that when, uh, when you're wrestling, you have these bouts of intense physical time where you're struggling, you're fighting each other. Uh, it's a little too close contact for me with other men, but you're, you're striving together, and then you have a match a few minutes later. And so the, one of the things that they, they disciplined us to teach us was to breathe and to slow down our heart rate. So it was this intentional time after you wrestled of breathing slowly to force our heart rates to go, da- to go down, to force air into our lungs. I'd want to gasp after. I'd want to go, <sighs> but no, it's, <sighs> and that's what Sabbath rest is. It's this time of taking these deep breaths and breathing in God's presence. And then going out into the world of toil and strife and worry and doing the best that we can. And so Sabbath is a way to honor the holiness of of God. And this joyful entry into his presence. And so Jesus uh, suggests that we find and follow this rhythm of rest. Whatever this looks like for you as an individual, find and follow a rhythm of rest that works for you. Maybe it's two evenings a week because a full day doesn't work. Whatever it looks like for you, find and follow a rhythm of rest. If you're a nature person, go out for a walk in nature. If you're a handy person, build something with your hands or paint or whatever it looks like. Find and follow a rhythm of rest. And our third uh, section of scripture here, Mark 3, 1 to 6. It says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking uh, for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, the crowd around him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus, Jesus is pretty bold. Because he intentionally does this in such a way that it would confront the Pharisees. He gathered this man, instead of healing him privately like he did most people, he put them in front of these Pharisees who were looking for a reason to accuse him. And he asks them, which is better to do, good or evil on the Sabbath? Is it better to to heal or to kill on the Sabbath? And they don't respond. They could have said what, what was in their hearts, which you shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath, so it's better not to heal. But they, whatever reason, they don't respond. And so it says he's angry at the stubbornness in their hearts. At, at their hearts, he's, he's angry that they are so lost in what they're doing. That rules are more important than people. Rules are more important that they would rather this man suffers another day with a shriveled hand and maybe never have the opportunity to be healed by Jesus than he would do it on the Sabbath. And so he puts them in front of them. And after giving them the opportunity to change their minds, he heals them. And then the last line is it says, and then they go out and they plot with the Herodians. Now the Herodians were people that they followed King Herod. King Herod was the, uh, was the uh, political leader of the day 
that uh, was not a follower of God. And he worked with the Romans and helped to oppress the people. And so it shows how much these people hated Jesus. They, they essentially plotted with their enemies to kill Jesus. The man that was sent as their Messiah, the man that was sent as their healer, as their helper, they plotted with their earthly enemies to have him killed. So it shows the heart that they have, that they care more about their rules and their things than about people. There's an uh, atheistic philosopher named Pascal that said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Now, Pascal was a critic, and he, he didn't believe in God, and he, uh, he apparently died screaming out that he rejected God. But he has a little bit of truth here. Sometimes people do things in God's name that God never asked for. It's harsh, but great travesties have been done in the name of God for things God never asked or commanded. Jesus came as the Savior, and he loved people so thoroughly that he was willing to go wherever they were to tell them about him, to tell them the truth of the gospel. Even when those who should have loved him, for the Jews that he was their king, rejected him, Jesus went against it. So Jesus, uh, whatever their prescribed rules of the day, he showed he cares so much more about relationship with people than just about following rules. Christian spirituality is never meant to be a ball and chain for us. It's never meant to be something that we have to do, follow these certain rules, do this certain thing. You don't have to come to church. You get to come to church. You get to gather and so anytime that we make rules that you have to do this, you have to do this, they're, they're a stumbling block for those who don't yet believe. Individually, we can have our own things that we want to do that I, personally, I, I want to read through the Bible every single year, at least once through the Bible every year, every word in the Bible. But do I say everyone has to do that? No. I want to do that. I would encourage other people to read the Bible but maybe for somebody else, that's too much at this stage in their walk. Maybe it starts with one verse a day. Maybe then it goes on to a chapter a day. Whatever it looks like. Rules aren't meant to, to force us into a relationship. Relationship draws us into obedience with Jesus. And so Jesus' approach is different from the Pharisees. Instead of asking, what are the rules and what do people think I should do? Jesus asks, who needs to be helped? That should be our question. Rather than saying, what do people need to do? What should people do? What shouldn't people be doing? We should be asking, who needs to be helped by the love of God this morning? Who needs to be told about the hope that is found in Jesus? We shouldn't expect people to change their behavior before they have a relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is strong enough to convict them. You know, in, uh, in Hebrews, Karis and I are reading through it, and it talks about the new covenant over and over and over again, and about how the law of God is written on our hearts. And uh, one of the questions asked uh, in reflecting this study was, uh, is it more effective to have rules outside telling you what to do or to have your heart telling you what to do? And for me, I, I sometimes rebel against outside rules. If someone tells me I can or can't do something, part of me, my rebellious spirit wants to do that, even if I never wanted to before, just because that person's telling me to. But if I feel convicted about something in my heart that I should or shouldn't be doing, 
I don't care what the external rules say. If I feel like God's saying I should or shouldn't do something, I'll go to prison for it. If, if the, all of a sudden the, the rules of Canada change and you're no longer allowed preaching in front of a church on Sunday mornings, I don't care. I've been called and convicted by God that this is what I'm to do. So if I go to prison, so be it. But if I had, if I had a legal law saying I have to do this every morning, I, then I wouldn't want to. But I get to do this. And that's what relationship with Jesus is. Jesus isn't saying the law doesn't matter, the rules don't matter. He never says that. But he says, I care more about whether someone follows me and has a relationship with me. The, raw, the, laws, the rules will follow later. So if we allow the Holy Spirit to be big enough to convict other people of their sin, then God can do anything. God can save anybody. And so it's not about the rules. It's actually about who rules. It's not about the rules. It's about who rules. If Jesus rules in your heart, then we will be obedient. It doesn't matter what rules we make up or don't make up. And I'm not sitting here saying, let's all reject all the rules ever, okay? That's not what I'm saying. There are rules that should be followed, that need to be followed. There's rules to be in community. There's ways we should act. There's behavior that's appropriate and not. But that has to be dealt with in relationship. So members of our church have a different behavior requirement and expectation than those who are just figuring out faith. Because they're saying, yes, I want to be a member. Yes, I want to step up. Yes, I want to serve. And so then there's a deeper commitment level. But all spiritual exertion, that only means to set ourselves up and make ourselves better than other people is useless. Jesus doesn't care about that. He's not impressed by our uh, forced spirituality. He's impressed by our love for him and love for other people. So this morning, I just want to challenge us to be people that, that would love other people the way that Jesus does. That we would care so much for people that we would build relationships with people who li- whose lives are so unlike us. For people that, that we would never have anything in common with that maybe we would build relationship with them and show them what it means to be loved by Jesus, by loving them. That we don't expect them to change their behavior just because they're around us, but we would expect them to start understanding what Jesus' love is and that he would change their behavior. And so Jesus welcomes everyone in, and as they grow in relationship with him, then his obedience challenges us more and more. So when I first started following Jesus, my obedience was terrible. If you first met me when I first encountered Jesus, you wouldn't look at me and say, that guy's a Christian. You would probably look at me and say, that guy's a sinner. He needs Jesus. But as I've grown more and more in love with Jesus, I've wanted to obey him more and more and more. When I first, when I first got a Bible, I tried to read that thing straight through. And I, I think I only made it through a few chapters of Genesis before I gave up. And I still have that Bible of the check mark of where I would. And every few months I'd pick it up and I'd try and make a few more. And it was hard and it was hard. But I, 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 I didn't feel compelled to. It's something I wanted to do. And now I, I enjoy reading the Bible. Sometimes it's a discipline, but most of the time I enjoy it. I enjoy learning new things. And so 15 years into the journey of following Jesus, I can't believe where I am versus where I used to be. And it's not because someone forced me out. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to act in this way. It's because in my relationship with Jesus, I've deepened and I've grown. And I would hope each one of you here this morning would have that same testimony. That wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, maybe you're just beginning to know him. You're just hearing who he is. Or you've walked with him for more years than I've been alive. 
what a beautiful thing to learn to grow more and more in love with him and to want to follow him closer and closer and closer. So as the, the worship team comes up, I just, want to, uh, I just want to pray for us. And there's three specific ways that, uh, suggestions that you can act on the message this morning. The first of them is to read the Gospel of Mark. I truly believe the Bible is powerful. If you've already read all the way through it, read it again. If you haven't started yet, it's a great time. It's a great little book. Uh, 16 chapters, it's great. We'll be in it for another few months. And the second is to reflect. So reflect on your relationship with Jesus. So wherever you are in your relationship, whether you've known him for a long time, whether you're just starting to know him, pray to him, talk to him, and get to know him more. And then third is to rest. Incorporate a regular rhythm of rest in your life, whatever that looks like personally. And so let me pray, and then the worship team will lead us in response. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for that you care so much about us that you want relationship with us more than you want our, uh, us to follow just rules that we make up, Jesus. Jesus, you challenge us and you call us to follow after you. And yes, we need to obey. And yes, we, we will have rules that we follow, but that you care so much about us that you want, us, you want our hearts before you want our obedience. Because we can't earn it. We don't deserve it, but we have your love, Jesus. And so that all those who repent and ask for your forgiveness are accepted as sons and daughters of you, Jesus. Just as the sinner on the, the, uh, the thief on the cross beside you, Jesus, he hadn't done anything. He didn't go and he didn't even tell anyone about Jesus yet. He didn't tell anyone about the faith he had in you, but you said he would be with you in paradise. But I pray that each one of us here this morning would have more of a testimony of what you have done in other people's lives through our obedience. And so I thank you, Jesus, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you're going to do in our lives. In your mighty and precious name I pray. Amen.